Hello, listeners. Thanks to all those that downloaded the last episode about parallel universes. This is an adventure-filled episode full of killer asteroids, mega earthquakes, huge tidal waves, and devastating tornadoes. Some disaster movies are cautionary tales of the effects of climate change or stories about how insignificant the planet Earth is. Sometimes we're just going to be in the orbit of a flying space rock. Other times they're true stories of real natural disasters. Even though this podcast has science fiction in the name, I think of disaster movies as their own distinct genre. Some of them are action adventures like San Andreas or 2012. Some have more science exposition where the main characters are in a science field like Day After Tomorrow in The Wave. Others are high-stakes family dramas like Armageddon. A guest on one of my new podcast obsessions, Nightmare University, actually called Dante's Peak a monster movie because it followed so closely with the beats of Jaws including the early kill. Instead of teenagers skinny dipping and getting killed by a shark, teens are boiled alive in a hot spring by the volcano. Whatever the genre crossovers, disaster movies can be fun, they can be scary, they can be thought-provoking, and they can be really, really bad. Just like science fiction movies. But how close are they to real disasters? This is Fact in Science Fiction. I'm your host, Carly, And this episode is about the science behind disaster movies. The Wave from 2015 is a Norwegian film currently on YouTube and Hulu. It's about a geologist working on a fjord and on his last day of the job, a rock slide off the mountain triggers a tsunami. It's much better than half of the disaster movies I've seen. One of the things that annoy me about disaster movies is that the whole point of a disaster is that it affects a large region of people, or even the entire world. But for some reason, these movies choose like failed novelists or some random family to be the protagonists. But in the wave, it makes a lot of sense. The tsunami is giant, but it only affects this tiny town right by the shore. The main character is the geologist who catches the rock slide on the sensors first. The film is based on an actual rock slide caused tsunami in Norway in 1934. Two million cubic meters of rock fell off the mountain into the fjord, causing a tsunami that reached 203 feet tall near the landslide and about 52 feet tall at Tofjord, the town by the shore. It killed 40 people that lived right there. This was one of the worst natural disasters in Norway in the 20th century, but there have been much, much bigger and more devastating landslides than that in other places in the world. In September 2018, Indonesia was hit by a 7.5 magnitude earthquake, and we're going to talk about magnitude and earthquakes later. Authorities warned citizens on a nearby island called Palu Bay that a tsunami could be triggered, but censors reported that it would be a small wave that would hit within the hour. Well, it didn't take an hour. Within minutes, the tsunami was four times larger than authorities predicted. In some places on the inlet, it was 8 meters or 26 feet tall. Subsequent smaller waves came one to two minutes later. Together, the earthquake and tsunami killed over 4,000 people. Seismologists tried to figure out how the earthquake could have caused this large of a tsunami. According to the May 2019 issue of Nature, it confused seismologists because the wave followed a strike-slip tremor, or earthquake, in which continental plates move horizontally. Such quakes should trigger only small tsunamis, 
Large waves usually result only when tectonic plates move up and down. How was this tsunami so miscalculated? What caused this? Jennifer Haas at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography in La Jolla, California, led a study to find out. One of the researchers on Haas's team found 38 amateur video and surveillance clips of the tsunami online. Where possible, the team pinpointed the locations of the videos on a map and synchronized them by timestamp. These videos and posts allowed the researchers to reconstruct how the tsunami had moved through Palu Bay. The team realized that the tsunamis and subsequent waves were originating closer to the shore than originally predicted. They realized that the quake didn't directly cause the tsunami. The earthquake was triggered by an underwater landslide that pushed the water toward the shore, just like in the movie The Wave. Their sensor buoys couldn't measure it because they were farther out in the ocean. Because of this study, Indonesian authorities learned that they needed better sensors to monitor the seabed where there are weak silt spots and alert when there are underwater landslides. This study was also really important because of their non-traditional research methods for using social media and YouTube that way. The truth is is that landslides are most commonly caused by rainfall. Rain saturates rock and silt and unstable areas become even more unstable reaching a tipping point and then falling down mountains or hillsides. Because most landslides are caused by rain, agencies and researchers can monitor rainy seasons in areas with more landslides than others and formulate models and predictions for when and where the next one can occur. One of these models was created by NASA called the Landslide Hazard Assessment for Situational Awareness, or LHASA, to identify where landslides are likely to occur and to learn from previous rain-caused landslides. The model combines rainfall data and other data that indicates susceptibility. Susceptibility is impacted by several factors, such as if roads have been built nearby, if trees have been removed or burned, if a major tectonic fault lies nearby, if the bedrock is weak, and if the hillsides are steep. So if an area has been marked on the susceptibility map and is experiencing a lot of rainfall, it can trigger a warning that a landslide has a higher probability of occurring. Along with statistical models, like the study in Nature about the Indonesian tsunami in 2018, a landslide expert at NASA Goddard is leading a citizen science project to collect observations of these landslides from the affected areas and use data that way. Micah McKinnon is a geophysicist and science journalist I happened to follow on Twitter years ago. In an article on io9, she said that small landslides are pretty easy to predict how fast the runout will be, where the destruction will start and end. It's like charting a block rolling down a ramp. But for large landslides, the stuff of disaster movies, it's incredibly hard to predict and prepare for. Once a landslide gets big enough, it stops acting like blocks or rocks and starts acting like a liquid. And it starts falling very, very fast. It blows away all of the models used to predict smaller landslides. One explanation is that when a landslide is big, it doesn't just have rocks and silt, but it entrains everything else around it, jostling it together. And somehow it reduces friction by some factor that makes it behave more like a liquid. And scientists aren't sure how yet. That's another reason why landslides can still be so scary and devastating. I remember a single tweet from Micah McKinnon. She was answering a question about naming a time when she got emotional about science. She tweeted, The minimum duration of the first landslide I ever worked on is the duration of a voicemail recorded by the local scientist describing it. He didn't hang up when the landslide reached him. Just that image that I imagined in my head reading that, 
I think that's why disaster movies will always be around. Taking a step back from landslides specifically, let's talk about the disaster movie genre. What makes a disaster movie? I think there are three things. The first is that the disaster has to take place on a large scale. While we may view the action through a particular protagonist's point of view, or through a group's point of view, it has to affect an entire region, on a national scale, international, or even global. What was interesting for the wave that I mentioned earlier is that it really only affected a small town on the edge of the water. Once the wave passed over that town, it was done. But there are national disaster movies like San Andreas and Dante's Peak, and there are other movies that focused on global events like Day After Tomorrow, Deep Impact, and Armageddon. Second, disaster movies have to have a natural disaster. Otherwise, we could include all war movies or all alien invasion movies like Independence Day. There often is a chance to avoid the disaster, like in Deep Impact and Armageddon, but mostly the stories are about survival. There is no conscious being who is our enemy, who we would typically think of as the villain. You can't reason with the asteroid or convince the volcano to stop from erupting. Which brings us to the third trait of a disaster movie. Time. A ticking clock. Even though typically in these movies we as humans take too long to realize the threat, we do tend to see them coming, and we know when they're going to hit. A lot of the suspense and action builds up to this single event. I guess I should add a fourth element. I think there's a lot of crossover among disaster movies and what we traditionally call science fiction. Often disaster movies have a message or allegory or social commentary. Sometimes it's on authority like the government and the government's response to the disaster. Sometimes these movies' messages are about individualism, how one person, lone scientist, or one family can make a difference. In the case of Day After Tomorrow, the message was all about climate change and how our time was up. Unfortunately, the ending had a pretty optimistic message about how it all is cyclical, that once we survive these catastrophic storms for a few days, everything will be nice and new again, by all real indicators, will not happen. I really wish they didn't play that movie in school so much. So the fourth element is an underlying message, and that's why I think disaster movies fit well with science fiction. The first disaster films that I can find use the disaster to test the main characters. The first is 1936's San Francisco, starring Clark Gable and Spencer Tracy. It's actually a musical drama slash romance set in 1906 around the devastating 8.9 magnitude earthquake in San Francisco. Another is 1939's The Rains Came, set in India around a romance. The city is devastated by an earthquake that causes a flood, which then causes a cholera epidemic. This devastation inspires the main character Edwina Esketh to give up her selfish lifestyle to care for the ill. These films were more character-driven rather than being about a natural disaster, but you can see these kinds of themes in modern disaster films where a natural disaster inspires the main character of the wave to become a more involved father, or a tornado makes Bill Paxton realize he's really in love with Helen Hunt and not poor Jamie Gertz. Okay, maybe that's enough about disaster movies. Let's take a look at earthquake science for a minute. Let's flash back to our elementary school days. You probably learned about how we live on the outer crust of the planet that's formed by plates like jigsaw puzzle pieces, floating on and shifting back and forth on hot magma. These plates butt up against each other, and when the friction becomes too much, the crust starts to quake to varying degrees of severity. 
Sometimes one plate will be forced under another one with enough energy that it becomes really violent shaking. These are called induction zone earthquakes. Earthquakes can't happen just anywhere. They occur on fault lines, those edges of the puzzle pieces we all live on. There are man-made earthquakes too, caused by fracking. Injecting the fracking liquid solution in the earth near fault lines has called small quakes through Oklahoma, southwest Missouri, southeast Kansas, I know personally. Earthquakes are measured by magnitude on the Richter scale that goes from 1 to 10, logarithmically so each whole point equals to 10 times the more ground motion change. A 1 on the Richter scale isn't typically felt by people, and most earthquakes are around that magnitude. Only a small portion causes damage. However, large magnitude doesn't necessarily correlate to devastation. Earthquakes on the lower end of the Richter scale can have really bad consequences. The Japan earthquake in 2011 was a 9.0 to 9.1 mega earthquake that led over to 15,000 deaths. The earthquake that hit Haiti, the Dominican Republic, the Bahamas, and nearby areas in 2010 was a 3.5 magnitude earthquake that killed between 100 to 300,000 people, and Haiti is still dealing with the devastation to this day. The magnitude is also affected by the length of the fault line that the earthquake occurs on which impacted why the earthquake in Haiti was 3.5 while Japan was 9.0. There hasn't been and probably won't ever be a 10.0 on the Richter scale. There isn't a fault line long enough that would make that possible, according to the U.S. Geological Survey. It would have to be as long as half the Earth. But that didn't stop 2014's film 10.0 Earthquake. It's currently on YouTube, and it is not good. A city in danger. We have been getting calls all morning about tremor activity. Well, you're predicting a massive earthquake? Slow your horses. What's going on? It's a virtual 10.0. The big one. Unfortunately, we don't have the technology to truly predict earthquakes. Scientists can use probability and statistical modeling to forecast an area where an earthquake may strike within a few years, but can't predict the magnitude or the exact place and time. That's what makes earthquakes so scary. Still, scientists collect data to try to get more accurate models, create accurate messaging systems, and preparedness processes. One of my favorite disaster movies is Twister about storm chasers and scientists working together to collect data to learn more about tornado storm systems and create accurate predictions. It's been a while since I've seen it and I had to look it up to confirm, but I'm pretty sure that the good guys measuring systems, Dorothy, were pretty like shining globes, and the bad guys measuring systems were like evil and pokey and dark. I don't know if I've ever talked about this on the podcast before, but in 2011, my hometown, Joplin, Missouri, was hit by an F5 tornado the day after I graduated undergrad. Not only was it large by measurement standards, but it also happened to hit the worst possible sites in the city. It destroyed the one high school, It hit one of the two hospitals we had and multiple assisted living facilities. I was at work at the time at the bookstore, and all I could remember was that it was all white outside. You couldn't even see the cars in the parking lot. It was scary seeing nothing outside the windows except white, but I didn't really believe it was that horrible until I saw the damage. I remember when we were letting customers out of the store back to their cars, this guy hung up his phone and told us that Walmart and St. John's Hospital were gone and we didn't believe him. We never really took tornado warning sirens seriously before. But I think it sums up why disaster movies are so scary, that we can't reason with them. 
or convince them not to happen. It was the next day or third day or so after this horrible tornado killed over 150 people. There was another tornado watch. And I felt real fear. Because there is no rule saying that something like that can happen again. Two days after, one year after. Okay, that was pretty heavy, but we're talking about real disasters here. So if we can't truly predict the severity of these storms or events, what can we do to minimize the amount of destruction and human cost? Well, we can communicate the risk and encourage people to take shelter or do some sort of preventive action. In disaster movies, a good 20 minutes is about how the early warning systems is just being ignored. A lone scientist tries to warn the world, but it's too late. As my wife Jess says, they aren't called disaster preparedness movies. It turns out it's really difficult to convince a large group of people of anything or to take risks seriously, even if it means saving their own lives. We certainly have no idea what that's like in 2020. Mass health or risk communication is an entire area that I studied in graduate school. In fact, I did my thesis on the Zika outbreak in 2016 and how mass media and government agencies tried to educate large audiences on the risk and adopting behaviors like using bug spray or avoiding outbreak areas like Florida. Most risk communication depends on fear appeals. If you do not do this, this bad thing can happen. You have the power to take action, and you should. Otherwise, here are the side effects of you not taking action. That is how fear appeals should work. Unfortunately, fear appeals don't work that well, which is unfortunate because it's the truth. But why? Why don't fear appeals work? In the 1990s, Kim Witte created a framework to describe how large audiences process these kinds of fear appeals, called the Extended Parallel Process Model, or EPPM. This model was created specifically for health communication, but I like to conceptualize it for disaster movies so it's easier to understand. It's called a parallel process because the processing involves two tracks, fear and efficacy. Risk messaging typically increases fear of the threat at least a little bit. A large asteroid is moving toward Earth, but successful fear appeals have to communicate the other track, efficacy. A large asteroid is moving toward Earth, but if we all contribute the copper piping in our houses, we can create a rocket that will, with 100% certainty, throw it off its course. In this example, the messaging has increased fear, but we've also given a clear, easy way to empower individuals to contribute, or self-efficacy, and have given 100% certainty that the response will be successful, or response efficacy. According to the EPPM, this messaging would be successful. Unfortunately, real disaster messaging can't be like that. Too often we increase the fear and can't increase the efficacy of individuals or efficacy in the response. So if government agencies warn of an incoming storm, but can't predict where or the severity and the people don't feel confident that their shelters will protect them, or worse, they don't believe in the efficacy of the government to protect them, they're going to reject the risk messaging and not adopt those behaviors. Of course, the EPPM doesn't really describe everything that goes on in health communication. Most people are influenced by what their friends and family do much more than whatever mass communication they receive from authority figures. But I think it's interesting to think about when you watch these movies. How can you communicate the risk of a natural disaster in a way that people will listen? Unfortunately, we haven't figured it out. This is just the beginning of discussing disaster movies. I may have a future episode just about killer volcano movies. Studying natural disasters is still a developing science. 
We can't truly predict where and what severity a landslide or earthquake can happen. However, using satellites and statistical models, geologists can forecast general areas where landslides are likely to occur in rainy seasons. Likewise, researchers can study the probability of earthquakes at fault lines and track the results of earthquakes such as tsunamis using non-traditional methods like social media posts, but they can't predict the magnitude or time of earthquakes. The magnitude of earthquakes doesn't exactly correlate to how devastating an earthquake can be. While major earthquakes do cause damage, smaller earthquakes can still lead to country or region-wide devastation and injury, such as the Haiti earthquake in 2010. Just remember that the numbers of the Richter scale go up logarithmically. The difference between a 7.0 earthquake and an 8.0 earthquake is by a factor of 10. Keep in mind, too, that we won't have a 10.0 earthquake because there isn't a fault line large enough on Earth. So don't believe Hollywood. Communicating the risk of natural disasters is difficult. I discussed one model called the Extended Parallel Process Model, which posits that if you're going to use fear appeals in risk communication, it has to be paired with messaging about efficacy or confidence in the response and confidence in the person. You can't just tell the world that a giant storm is hurtling toward their area and expect them to adopt good behaviors if they aren't confident that it will do any good. If you have a favorite disaster movie, let me know about it on Twitter at Fact and Sci-Fi. If you enjoyed this podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcast and tell a friend. The link to the transcript for this episode and other content is in the show notes, or you can find it at factandsciencefiction.com. And lastly, thanks for listening.